0: Now, did any of you did any of you go out in the battlefield? Yeah. Some. Mm. You're holding off for the tour, right? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, at least there's some brave pioneers. But the tour will be good as well. There's a lot to see in a comparatively small space. But the battle went on for 3 days, so there was a lot to, for for people to do then. When I Talk about the Battle of Gettysburg. When I take students of mine out in the field, one of the first things I ask them to think about is what it smelled like. I mean, if you drive around and you know, you've got the little tape that goes with it, well, it's all very nice and it's very pleasant and rah-rah. And the monuments are heroic, uh, the soldiers in stone, and, the, and the, the grass is all neatly cropped, and the corn is waving in the breeze, and it all just looks so perfectly sterile. So the first thing I ask for people to think about is, what did it smell like? It's July, 1863. By the end of the battle, there are approximately 8,000, 9,000 corpses, which have been lying out in the hot July sun for three days. And they're not in good condition. So there's one stick. Also, this army did not bring porta-potties with it. There's another source. And there's not only human debris, but there's animal debris because these armies moved with muscle, either human muscle or animal muscle. So there were lots of dead horses and mules. There were also what horses and mules usually do when they're not dead. All that is around. Above all, these soldiers have had no time to bathe. They are in wool uniforms because that's what was issued. You got a wool uniform. That's what you wore summer and winter. Wool uniform. Wool pants, wool tunic, wool cap, wool all the time. So if you don't have an opportunity to bathe, which neither of these armies did because their collision to Gettysburg was not planned, no one had had a bath stop beforehand, they probably smelt like an army of indigents it was said the confederate army could be smelled before it was seen on the route so put the federal army and the confederate army together with all of those factors and it must have been really something downwind <laughs> so before anybody rushes to romanticize you know if they've seen the gettysburg movie or if they've read books about gettysburg just hold on a second you know the one thing which never tends to get factored in is what it smelled like. So that's just for starters, a little touch of realism. And when your guides take you around the battlefield of Gettysburg, you can you can point that out to them. Ask for a sample. See if they can do it. Not quite, huh? Well, you'll get a chance to see the Battle of Gettysburg. One of the things, have you seen where did any of you go when you were when you're shopping or when you were otherwise doing your thing uh, for the support of the larger Gettysburg economy? Um, Some of our subtler stores, our our Civil War specialty stores. Now by that I don't mean the the, the souvenir places where you get the the t-shirts and that kind of thing, the the Goo Gaws. I mean the honest to goodness department stores with Civil War goods, either original artifacts or reproduction artifacts that cater to the reenactor community. Anybody go in any of those places? Ooh, my goodness. I mean Gettysburg has got a bigger concentration of these places than any other spot in the country and they are genuinely amazing. It's like walking into a department store for reenactors. You want a private's uniform? Hey, we got a private's uniform for you. You want a major general's uniform? Hey, you can be that too. And they don't even ask to see your driver's license.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: Not only only for those who are wannabe soldiers, uh, there are stores that cater specifically to reenactment goods and garb for the ladies. So, 19th century, here you are. If you want to reenact or if you just want to amuse yourself with what it was like, my goodness, here's the place where you can do it. And I want to tell you something. Some of these stores, now they vary in intensity, but some of these stores are owned and staffed by what they call thread Nazis. (laughs) These are people who are so utterly committed to total, complete authenticity that they can even tell you whether a garment, a reproduction garment is authentic based on its thread count. All right, because they know what the 19th century thread counts were. And you may think, oh, come on. I'm saying, uh-huh, oh yeah, they're here. A couple of these places are really, really catered to, the, to what's called the hardcore reenactment community. Now you meant hardcore, how do you be a hardcore reenactor? If any of you have read Tony Horwitz's book, Confederates in the Attic, then you know what I mean by a hardcore reenactor. Reenactors vary. This is like the Sutler stores. Reenactors vary on the spectrum. And they go from what are disparagingly known as Farbs. These are people who are who are in it just sort of to have fun and it's a hobby and it's something you do on the weekend or, or whatever. And you know, they've got the pup tent, but inside is the cooler with the Miller light. Okay? So, you know, for, for farbs, you know, farbs do not worry about thread count. Uh, farbs will wear uh, kinds of things they, they obviously were manufactured in the 21st century, but made to look like. So far, yeah. And far, to call somebody a farb, those are fighting words. Okay? And since these people are armed, that's serious. <laughs> Then, at the other end of the spectrum, are, as I say, the hardcore reenactors. These are people who would look forward to an opportunity for an amputation.
1: <laughs> all right. That's how.
0: That's. These, these are these are people who don't just show up for a weekend reenactment. They camp out all the time. They march from Virginia. To Pennsylvania for the Gettysburg reenactment in July. Uh, they, their equipment is absolutely, utterly, totally perfect in terms of its genealogy to the 19th century. They can even do what is called the bloat. Oh,
1: no.
0: Yeah, the bloat. <laughs> the bloat, of course, is what corpses do after three days in the July sun. Yeah. Some of them have really mastered the art of being corpses and doing the bloat. All right. So, if you if you bump into reenactors on the streets of Gettysburg and believe me, Gettysburg is about the only town on the planet where someone can walk around in Civil War era garb and nobody notices.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, if I if I wore this hat, if I wore this hat, Around in Philadelphia. People would go like call the call the sanitation department. You know, what is it? what's wrong? Yeah, guys, yeah, there's something wrong with it. Around here, nobody knows it. Par for the course. So if you if you really if you really want to experience nineteenth century anonymity, this is the place to do it. And the stores are ready and eager to cater to you and sell things to you. And uh, you can you can find them all through the town, at either end of the town. Uh, and perhaps from your booklet, the tourism booklet from the convention people, uh, you can see some of the ads for some of these places. Actually, I just really think they're a lot of fun to walk around in. I, I, I can't resist. I love these places. I just, I just love to visit them. So maybe, maybe just for the fun of it, you want to as well, or else you want to buy something to take it home to impress your classes with. I mean, just it would really make their eyes drop out uh, if uh, you show up one day in a sergeant major's uniform, <laughs> wouldn't it? Th- I just think of the fun you'd have, and you could write it off in your taxes too, isn't it? You know, it's professional expense. <laughs> 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 you, you had a question. I just
1: wanted to tell you that the sanitary commission
0: is uh, camped up. That's right. We just ran into it by accident. on the women there, all dressed in their beautiful. Oh yes, out. yes. United States Sanitary Commission. No, that has nothing to do with the sewage system in Gettysburg. Sanitary in this, in the 19th century context, was sort of an equivalent of the USO. And it provided all kinds of support and encouragement services for the soldiers. Uh, This was done by civilians. It was a a private civilian organization that staged big fairs in northern cities to raise money uh, to provide goodies for the soldiers and care packages and fun things like that. So if uh, you really don't want to spend a weekend under the broiling sun in a wool uniform doing a sanitary commission recreation is, uh, is, a, is a viable alternative. Mm-hmm. All right, and we have people who do that. We have, there, are, there are civilian reenactors or what they call civilian impressions of all sizes and shapes uh, to do and there are places here in Gettysburg which cater to each and every one of them. So if you want to be somebody famous, All you have to do is pick the famous person you want to be and there's a store here that can kit you out that way to look like that person. Not too many people want to volunteer to be someone who was infamous or even insignificant, but if you want to be someone who was famous uh, and you want to do a reenactment of them or an impression of them, this is the Gettysburg the place to come. So I hope you have some fun with these places. They're really wonderful. Um, In fact, even around here on the square, this little hat came from a place called Dirty Billy's. And it's just on the other side of the square, which of course, remember, is a circle, but nobody in Gettysburg realizes that. Um, Dirty Billy's, unfortunately, is not open this weekend because Dirty Billy is at Manassas peddling his goods, but his store deals in nothing but hats. Absolutely nothing but hats. His front window is like a museum. And to walk into the store, I mean, this is absolutely hysterical. Hats of every shape and size of 19th century to Revolutionary War vintage. So, if, uh, if this kind of historical gear is to your liking, you have come to the right place, and that is Gettysburg, PA. So, I hope you had a chance to stop in those places. Last question of course is, how many of you just punted and sacked out? <laughs> we'll see who the eager beavers are answering questions this afternoon. All right, it is late in the afternoon. We are getting weary, we are getting hungry. This Lincoln business is now carrying on. We're starting to wear it thin. We're wondering, is there anything more that we can possibly say about Lincoln? And the answer is yes, deal with it. All right, we want to talk for a little bit about Lincoln and democracy, which sounds like it ought to be obvious, but as anyone who's ever had to think about the term democracy realizes, Oh, that might be a little bit sticky. Because what is democracy? How do we define democracy? How do we apply it? Democracy is one of those things we, sort of like the Supreme Court, you know, we think we know it when we see it. Well, maybe it's not quite that easy. Because after all, in the 19th century, the United States was a democracy, and yet its democracy existed coexisted with slavery. How could it be a democracy and coexist with slavery? Interesting question. How did it work that way? What kind of a democracy do you have? In strict political science terms, of course, I have to say this because I've got you-know-who over here. <laughs> in strict political science terms, we are not a democracy. This isn't, The United States was not, is not, and by its constitution will not be a democracy because a democracy would be a constant, unceasing plebiscite. You know, every issue that came up, everybody would vote on it at all times. We don't, that would be, imagine trying to poll 230 million of people uh, about what about their preferences are. All right, yes, I know, Trump and American Idol do that. But <laughs> it's a little different when it comes to serious political issues. So we are not a democracy. We are, however, a republic. And a republic is derived from the Latin terms res publica, public things, to translate it literally. Or to give you a more dynamic version of it, popular government, government of the people, all right? A republic exists in distinction to a monarchy, an aristocracy, an oligarchy, a military dictatorship, All of those are forms of government. A republic is yet another form of government. But what distinguishes a republic from all the other forms of government is that it is res publica. It is popular government, government of the people. Now, within a republic, within a republic, republics tend to be more or less democratic. In other words, republics, when we talk about popular government, that popular government can be more or less participatory and inclusive of all the members of a particular society or a particular polity, as political science people like to use the term. Polity is a word derived from the Greek term polis or city. Every government is a polity of one sort or another. So a Republican polity is characterized as being either more democratic or less democratic on a spectrum, and it can move. So democracy really ought to be an adjective describing republic. However, the way we have used the term for a century and a half, we've tended to use democracy and republic interchangeably. That's because for our republic, we have tended to be more democratic in nature than most republics that we have record of. Certainly more democratic than the ancient example of the Roman Republic. Certainly more democratic than many other examples of short-lived and short-stayed republics in other places, for for instance, uh, the Italian city-states during the Renaissance. So because our republic has been more democratic than most, we we have fallen into the habit of using the terms democracy and republic interchangeably. (laughs) But for the sake of clarity, and for the sake of keeping my political science friend happy with me, uh, that is how we have to talk about democracy. It's really, strictly speaking, an adjective. I'm going to use it in the way the 19th century used it and the way we use it today, which is as sort of a synonym for a republic. But please bear in mind from the beginning that distinction so I don't get into deeper trouble than I usually am with Lucas. I've often said to Lucas, political science people, it's very strange, I I don't speak their lingo. It's, it's it's a strange language stem. you know. It's like Minnesotan.
1: Ah, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Come on now.
0: Right, right, okay. So, uh, you know, history people, we're just, you know, we're just raving empiricists compared to political science. Political science people have great theorists, and great philosophical speakers. They have, you know, fifty syllable words to use for things. And, you know us history people. We're just you know usual Woolworths five and dime kind of types. You know nothing complicated about us. Everything's simple. Just down home, feet up on the table, right? <laughs> All right. What kind of a republic are we then? What kind of a republic slash democracy are we? And. And how, how in the 19th century could we call ourselves by these terms and yet accommodate slavery? Well, Stephen A. Douglas thought he knew. Stephen A. Douglas thought he knew how you got to have both together. And his understanding, his interpretation of what was meant by democracy boiled down to two words which you have now become very closely familiar with. And those two words are popular popular sovereignty. The Founding Fathers didn't know anything about popular sovereignty, or at least they didn't know those terms. Popular sovereignty is not invented as a concept until 1848, or at least a concept known by that title. And it's not invented until 1848, because up until that time, no one really needed those particular terms. What happened in 1848, however, made things very different. In 1848, we concluded the Mexican War with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and what we got out of the Mexican War looks like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Boy, we did really good out of the Mexican War because what did we pick up as the how shall we say the green stamps that went along with uh, with victory over Mexico? We picked up. That might have been a mistake, come to think of it, but never mind. (laughs) (laughs) All right, California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. Mexico. Well, we got clear, indisputed title to all of what is now Texas. That was actually how the war began. But some parts of Colorado, some parts of Utah. We got a lot. Effectively, what we got was the completion of the Louisiana Purchase. Now at the end of the revolution, we got from the Brits, not only the land belonging to the 13 colonies, but we got all the British possessions going to the Mississippi River. Okay? So 1783, we're an independent republic, we've got half the North American continent. Then in 1803, President Jefferson pulls off the greatest land deal in history, the Louisiana Purchase. Now, think of the Louisiana Purchase as a right triangle. I know this is a tax on you English people, but... Bear with me. Think of the Louisiana Purchase as a right triangle. The 90-degree angle is right up there at the Canadian border. I'm sorry, what?
1: In Minnesota.
0: Well, close to Minnesota. (laughs) And it extends on one leg all the way to the Pacific and includes Oregon. Extends another leg down and goes down to Louisiana and the Gulf. And then there's this long side of the right triangle that slashes diagonally across the American West. So if you think of a line going from Oregon all the way down to Louisiana, more or less what you have is the Louisiana Purchase. That was 1803. 1848, the end of the Mexican War, brings us the other right triangle, so to speak. This time if you think of the 90 degree angle as being at San Diego, and one leg running east to Louisiana, the other leg running north to Oregon, and the long line, the long face of that triangle meeting the long face of the Louisiana Purchase, then, rough and ready, you have what happened with the end of the Mexican War. (sighs) Nobody had planned for that. Nobody had planned for that. And that was a problem. In 1819, the first state to be carved out of the Louisiana Purchase, the state of Missouri, applied for membership in the Union. This was a surprise because when Thomas Jefferson pulled off the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, what he really thought he was buying was a great big game preserve. He thought that in in purchasing the, the territories known as Louisiana, that they would probably remain vacant for the next couple of centuries, while the interior of, the, of America east of the Mississippi slowly but surely filled up. And then everything west of the Mississippi that was in American hands would be sort of a, sort of a large resource pit from which Eastern America could constantly be drawing resources. And Jefferson in 1803 just didn't imagine there was going to be big development. Big underestimation. 16 years later, we're starting to organize the first state out of the, Missouri, out, out, of, out of the Louisiana Purchase, and that's the state of Missouri. Now, a big question promptly was posed to people. If we admit Missouri as a state, will it come into the Union as a free state or a slave state? Now, this was a problem which had never really occurred to people before because the organization of states up to this point had been governed by agreements and by legislation which had been adopted by Congress before the Constitution was adopted. The future of the Northwest, the future of the Southwest, or at least what was the Northwest and the Southwest then? Imagine in those days, Alabama was considered the Southwest. Those had all been handled before the Constitution was was ratified. So they were past history, but there was no arguing with it now. There was a new regime, and everything Everything that had been done in the past, well, that was the past, no question. 1819, however, is different. Missouri is different. It's the first state to come out of the Louisiana Purchase. And suddenly the question of whether it should be a free state or a slave state blows up in Congress like a sudden prairie tornado. Now, eventually, this is resolved in what is known as the Compromise of 1850. I'm sorry, Missouri Compromise. Sorry. In the Missouri Compromise, basically what it boiled down to was a line was drawn making two triangles within that big 90 degree angle. The lower triangle was to be reserved for organization as states that would legalize slavery. The rest was to be restricted for states organized on a free basis. And that seemed to make everybody happy in 1819 and 1820 when it was finally implemented. All right. So Missouri Compromise governs the Louisiana Purchase and any states to be made up out of the Louisiana <coughs> Purchase. And it has to be said honestly that there were not too many states after Missouri that were formed from the purchase. You know, there was Iowa, but uh, you know, apart apart from that, the progress Arkansas it, progress is really kind of halting. Then comes 1848. The Mexican War brings the other half, so to speak, of the American West into American hands. There's not a whole lot of question here about whether these places are going to develop as states, Because for one thing, they've already got populations inherited from the Mexican Republic. What's more, in 1848, there's a gold rush in California. And people decamp from the east by the thousands, crossing the prairies, crossing the mountains, going through the instruments of Panama. And suddenly, overnight, California has turned into, well, uh, California. Or at least Orange County. So, So here you have this territory called the Mexican Cession because it was ceded by Mexico to the United States. Suddenly, this is not only American territory, but suddenly large portions of it are hammering on the door wanting to be organized as states and admitted to the Union. What's a Congress to do? Because at that point, immediately the old question came up again, slave or free? The solution to this was found in the Compromise of 1850. And it was a real tough fight, because actually there were four proposed solutions to this dilemma. Southern slaveholders said, hey, just open the whole thing up to slavery. And they felt that they had justification for saying that, because had not Southerners fought in the Mexican War, had they not shed their blood to acquire this territory, didn't they deserve it as a reward? Why should they be excluded? Why should they be treated as second-class citizens just because they owned slaves? So this is one solution, and that is open it all to slavery. The other solution is don't open it one peep to slavery. This was the proposition of Pennsylvania Congressman David Wilmot in what became known as the Wilmot Proviso. It's called the Proviso because it's a rider that's attached to various bills. The Wilmot Proviso was attached to about 40 different bills. Each time Wilmot trying to get the thing passed by pinning the tail on the donkey. Each time, it somehow got separated. Each time, it got voted down. But he kept at it, and he kept at it. No matter what the bill was, up came Wilmot's proviso. Bing! Right onto the bill. It might be a bill for, I don't know, traffic lights in Gettysburg, but suddenly there was a Wilmot proviso on it. Well, the Wilmot proviso basically said, let's treat let's treat the Mexican session as something which be, should be reserved strictly for free state settlement. Of course, All slaveholders clutched their chests and fell over on their desks that way. Another solution was, hey, look, the Missouri Compromise line has worked for 30 years. Let's just extend it westward, right through the Mexican session. All right, that sounded good because the Missouri Compromise was tried and true and everybody lived with it for 30 years. The only problem is the Missouri Compromise line would cut across the top of the Mexican session and would effectively turn over most of the session to slave development. That would not be acceptable to northerners. Finally comes Louis Cass, Secretary of State, Senator from Michigan. Louis Cass proposes that Congress not try to settle this question at all. Let's let the people in the territories decide whether they want to have slavery or not. And Cass calls this popular sovereignty. We would today probably may remember Lewis Cass better. In fact, we might even be reading Lewis Cass. We might even be reading the letter in which Lewis Cass articulated the doctrine of popular sovereignty, his public letter to A.O.P. Nicholson. However, Lewis Cass was a big, heavy, doer, unjolly, fat, heavy, repulsive, brainless, chicken-hearted politician. All right?
1: Yeah. He had one
0: good idea during his lifetime. And there's even some question as to whether it was good. Now, of course, that's better than a lot of politicians, you have to understand. But that was Louis Cass's like, This was a man who wanted to be president. Everyone thanked him for his idea and said, no, thank you, we really don't want you as president. So he didn't become president. But um, he did author the idea of popular sovereignty. However, because Lewis Cass was Lewis Cass, popular sovereignty becomes associated not with Lewis Cass, but with a young whippersnapper of a senator from Illinois, Stephen Arnold Douglas, because it is Douglas who gloms on to the doctrine of popular sovereignty, promotes it, popularizes it, and eventually, by the end of the year 1850, has popular sovereignty offered as the primary solution to what to do with the Mexican session. There were a lot of attractive elements to the doctrine of popular sovereignty. I mean, for one thing, it had the ring of genuine democracy to it. Basically, it said, let the people in the territories decide by their own majority vote what they want to be. Let them articulate their own future, self-determination. That was one advantage that popular sovereignty had. It just sounded. Normal. It sounded American. It was up there with mom and apple pie. You can see it now. Mom, apple pie, popular sovereignty. You know, it all works together. I mean, who, who in their right mind was actually going to get up in front of a public audience and say, I do not believe that the people are sovereign? No, I mean, not unless they wanted to cut their throat politically in public. So who who was, who was who was going to deny popular sovereignty? It just sounded so so American, so democratic. The other advantage that popular sovereignty had was this. It kicked the football out of Congress. I mean, remember what has been going on here. In 1819, Congress goes loggerheads over slavery in Missouri. People are threatening each other with pistols on the floor of the House of Representatives. I mean, don't, you, if you think politics are polarized today, Oh, you ain't seen nothing. These are people who want to settle things out in the parking lot, but they don't mean fisticuffs. They mean settle it for good. All right? And when you're in for a fight, you're in for a funeral. Oh, they meant that. All right? This is what happens in 1819 to 1820. You get it again in 1848 to 1850. People threatening each other. Southerners threatening they're going to secede from the Union. Northerners threatening that they don't care. People on the floor threatening each other, people drunk on the floor threatening each other, people bringing whips and clubs and revolvers onto the floor of the House. And on one occasion in 1854, one member of the House of Representatives walking into to the nearly deserted Senate chamber, finding there Massachusetts <coughs> Senator Charles Sumner, who had just delivered a two days long speech against slavery, and using his walking stick to brain Sumner while he's sitting at his desk in the Senate. Sumner was out of action for three years recovering from it. <coughs> so this, you know, this, this is what was going on. Douglas looks at this and says, My goodness. All the Congress is going to do is rip its guts out publicly if we let it go on. Like this is the wrong form. Congress is the wrong form for establishing this. So long as Congress can do nothing but paralyze itself over this question of the Mexican session. Nothing good is going to happen in the rest of the country. The people's business is not going to be attended to. Roads aren't going to get paved. Legislation isn't going to be considered. Things are going to go downhill in a handbasket. So Douglas says, "You know what the great thing about popular sovereignty is? He gets it out of Congress. Congressmen don't have to threaten each other. Congress can get on with more important subjects, like you know, congressional pay raises." And and the people get to decide. So two advantages, then, to popular sovereignty. Oh, it really sounds like good stuff, doesn't it? And if, you, and if you really trust the people, as any good member of democracy should, uh, then you should be confident that, that the people will make the right decision. And that, my friends, is the doctrine of popular sovereignty as articulated and promoted by Stephen A. Douglas. And in fact, it seemed to work. It seemed to work so well that in 1854, Douglas decides in his capacity as chairman of the Senate Committee on Territories to see if this shouldn't be allowed to operate in other ways. I mean, you know, some new wonder drug cures disease X. Hey, let's see if it'll cure disease Y. Okay, fair enough inference. So, in January of 1854, with an application in his hands from the territory of Nebraska for admission as a state of the union, Douglas proceeds to push through his committee a recommendation for admission of Nebraska. First of all, organization of Nebraska as a territory, and then subsequent to that, admission as a state on the basis of popular sovereignty. Now at this point, you might say, well, OK, so what? Well, yeah, that's Stephen Douglas's long suit. One big difference. The Nebraska territory, which in those days involved, in fact, all of Nebraska and all of Kansas, all one great big territory, that was old Louisiana Purchase territory, which had been governed by the Missouri Compromise since 1820. This was a new wrinkle. The Missouri Compromise had, in the views of many Northerners, protected the Louisiana Purchase from infection by slavery. And here's Stephen A. Douglas saying, let's junk the Missouri Compromise and let the old Louisiana Purchase territories, which had been settled according to the rule laid down in the Missouri Compromise, let's let them now organize themselves according to popular sovereignty. And Douglas's reasoning for this is twofold. One is, he loves popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty is the kite that he is flying to greater and greater political prominence. He's the wonder man. He's got the solution that solves political problems. Of course, the other thing was, every application of territories like Nebraska for admission to territorial status or statehood from the Louisiana Purchase had been blocked. With the exception of Iowa, it had been blocked by Southerners in Congress who did not want to see more free states added to the Union and more free state representatives and senators added to Congress. Well, Douglas looks at this and sees this is a deadlock. We can't call it a Mexican standoff because that would apply to the Mexican session. It was a deadlock, all right? There's a deadlock here. Unless you can move to territorial organization and then to statehood, nothing in the rest of Louisiana Purchase all the way to Oregon. None of that is ever going to be able to be developed. If you can't do that, then you can't protect settlers in those territories. How can settlers be invited to move into the Louisiana Purchase, set up shop if there's no government? What are they going to do? Move into Mr. Locke's state of nature? But unless there's authorization from Congress for setting up territorial governments, that protection's not going to be there. And if that protection's not gonna be there, nobody's gonna move into the territories. And the territories go undeveloped. And you know what also does not happen? No transcontinental railroad. There was no way a transcontinental railroad was going to be put through the sands and the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona. We hadn't yet invented air conditioning. So the really viable route for Transcontinental Railroad would take it from St. Louis through Omaha to San Francisco. To do that, you had to run the lines across, Missouri, across Louisiana Purchase territory. And to be able to do that, you had to create territorial governments for the Louisiana Purchase. But if Southerners were fighting that and obstructing it and paralyzing it, you'd never get those territorial governments and you'd never get the transcontinental railroad. And if you don't get a transcontinental railroad, how are you gonna knit the two parts of the country together? I mean, you've got California, already admitted as a state, it it jumped the territorial phase because it had so much gold lying in in, in its soil. What would stop California from setting up as an independent republic then? I mean, is California going to be content to remain a State of the Union if it can't communicate except by the Pony Express with the rest of the country? Why not California setting up on its own shop? Why not an independent republic on the west coast? Might happen if Congress showed that it simply wasn't interested in California. All this is going through the mind of Stephen A. Douglas. And so Douglas proposes as the deadlock breaker as the way to cut the Gordian knot, apply the doctrine of popular sovereignty to the Louisiana Purchase in general and to the Nebraska Territory in particular. Oh, what a fight there was in Congress with this. Northerners objecting, Southerners uneasy. But Douglas was nothing if not a great schemer and a great manipulator a man who oozed charm and dissimulation from every pore, And so the bill was passed. At that point, Kansas was divided into two territories. I'm sorry, Nebraska was divided into two territories, Kansas and Nebraska. And Kansas immediately moved towards territorial organization. And that was when everything in the doctrine of popular sovereignty started to come unglued. Well, leave aside that for a moment. This is also the moment in 1854 when Abraham Lincoln is, so to speak, politically born again. Abraham Lincoln, when last we looked at him, was an Illinois lawyer, politically ambitious, served several terms in the Illinois legislature, and then, as a Whig, was elected to the House of Representatives for one single term. He's in the House of Representatives, 1847 to 49. Then he goes back to Springfield. He has nothing to show for it. Doesn't get the federal job that he was hoping to get as a reward for being a loyal Whig and for rooting for Zachary Taylor as a Whig to win the presidency in 1848. Lincoln gets nothing. He goes back to Springfield. He's disgusted with politics. He drops out of politics. Not entirely, but he drops out of active politics, politics as a career. He turns his attention as a lawyer to being a lawyer. And we might not have heard anything from him after that were it not for the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Because Kansas-Nebraska, he said, woke him, alarmed him, terrified him, as nothing else had ever awakened him before. Because all at once, Lincoln saw in the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Doctrine of Popular Sovereignty something that Stephen A. Douglas did not see, or at least pretended not to see. And that something was this, a conspiracy, a deep and a dark conspiracy. Popular sovereignty was the Trojan horse, by which aggressive expansionist slaveholders were going to extend their dominion, not just into the Mexican session, but into the Louisiana Purchase territories as well. Stephen A. Douglas, although he was from Illinois, was nevertheless a prominent Democrat. And the Democratic Party was, in large measure, owned by its southern wing. Not only that, even Douglas's own Illinois was something of a microcosm of the country as a whole. We think of Illinois as a northern state. We think of Illinois as a free state. Don't. Illinois was really three states. There was a northern section of Illinois populated largely by people from New England. And it was aggressively and militantly opposed to slavery. But there was a southern part to Illinois, and that had largely been settled by migrants from the Upper South. They didn't want slavery, but that was not because they were opposed to slavery. They just didn't want slavery in their backyards competing with them economically. There was no trace of concern about the moral dimensions of slavery. They just didn't want competition from big factory style plantations. Otherwise, they remained sympathetic to the South. Then in the middle in Illinois was a central band, the central band that had elected Lincoln as a Whig, and that one was up for grabs. People who were generally anti-slavery in temperament, but not very aggressively so. They were anti-slavery, and that was about the end of the discussion. Ask them what they thought about slavery, we oppose it. Going to do anything about it? No. Going to think about it? No. Going to vote about it? No. We're just opposed to it. How's the weather up your way? You know, that's, that's how the discussion would happen in central Illinois. Lincoln is an old Whig from central Illinois. But when he looks at the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he doesn't look at something that is going to leave him indifferent. Instead, what he sees is a plot. What is really going on in popular sovereignty? An effort to let the people decide for themselves and exercise in popular government and democracy? No. This is really a snide, covert attempt to use popular sovereignty, the doctrine of popular sovereignty, the language of popular sovereignty, as this Trojan horse pushing slavery into the territories, and especially the old Louisiana Purchase. Remember, Lincoln believed that slavery was a problem which was going to cure itself. Just contain it, and it'll die out on its own. Now, here comes Douglass' Kansas, Nebraska. And he's actually tearing down the walls of containment. And if slavery goes into the old Louisiana Purchase territories, what will be next? Will slavery clamor to reassert itself in the free states? Why not? Why not? And so Lincoln begins to see in popular sovereignty a threat to himself, a threat to Illinois, a threat to the entire North, and a threat to democracy. What Douglas is inviting people to is not democracy or an exercise in popular government. Douglas has sold himself to the slave-holding <coughs> interests and he's using popular sovereignty as a way of beating down the restrictions on slavery in the Louisiana Purchase. And as if to confirm this suspicion of what Douglas was really up to, in 1857, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is followed by the Dred Scott decision. The Dred Scott decision ratifies one part of the doctrine of popular sovereignty. In that, it asserts that Congress has no authority and no jurisdiction in determining the slave or free status of the territories, whether they're in the Mexican session, or whether they're the Louisiana Purchase, or whether they're on the other side of the globe, which they aren't yet, but in prospect, it could be. So Congress has no constitutional authority. In other words, this is not just a doctrine reflected in a particular piece of legislation. This is a dictum handed down by the United States Supreme Court, which makes that absolute. On the other hand, it does provide something of a problem, the other half of the decision for Stephen A. Douglas. Because what the Supreme Court says in the Dred Scott decision effectively bars even the territories and the territorial legislatures from banning slavery. The argument of the Dred Scott decision is this. What are slaves? Slaves are property. The Dred Scott case had been initiated by a slave, named Dred Scott, of course, who had been born in Missouri, a slave state taken by his master into a free federal territory and into a free state, and who sued for his freedom on the basis that the moment he set foot on free territory, federal or state, that was the moment in which he ceased to be a slave. Case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. and The Supreme Court ruled a: that Dred Scott was not a citizen of the United States and therefore had no standing to sue in the federal courts. The reason he was not a citizen of the United States, despite the fact that he was born in Missouri, was that he was black. Blacks could not be citizens. Only white people could be citizens of the United States of America. So first point then in Dred Scott, because Dred Scott is black, he cannot be a citizen. And if he's not a citizen, he has no standing to sue in a federal court. Supreme Court could have stopped there, but it didn't. It then went on articulate its doctrine that nobody, not Congress, not the territorial legislatures, had the right to ban slavery because Dred Scott, obviously being black, is not a citizen. Well if he's not a citizen, what is he? He's obviously not a foreigner because he was born in Missouri. What is he? Well he's a slave. Well, What is a slave? Slave is chattel property. Now Congress does not ban people from taking property with them, American citizens taking property with them into the territories. If you want to take your horse, Congress can't prevent you from taking your horse. Any legislation in Congress that forbade people from taking horses into the Kansas territory would have it overturned by the Supreme Court. If you wanted to take your dog into the territory, you would be free to do that because that dog is your property. If you wanted to take your wagon, or you wanted to take your tools into Kansas, that was your property. You were free to do with it what you want, and Congress should not try to pass legislation to prevent you from taking your property where you wanted to go. Well, slaves are property! And according to the Dred Scott decision, that's what they are. Then you put them in the same category with the horse and the dog and the tools and the wagon. And it would be just as invidious to take, to for Congress to interfere with that property relationship, as in any of the others. Therefore, the second part of the Dred Scott decision says, "Whoop! Every territory is open to slaveholders to take their slaves." At this point, Abraham Lincoln begins to conclude that not only is Douglas sold out to the slaveholding interests because he wants to be president—no secret about that. But he has now been joined by the Supreme Court. But they were acting hand in glove. There's a progress here from popular sovereignty to the Dred Scott decision, which looks awfully fishy, looks awfully connected. And then, and then, two days, two days after the Dred Scott decision is handed down, President James Buchanan is inaugurated, President of the United States, and declares that he will in his inaugural address, abide by all the provisions laid down in the Dred Scott decision. And in 1857, Buchanan puts all the way to the presidential office behind the organization of Kansas as a slave territory, despite the fact that the movement to organize Kansas as a slave territory is politically bogus. It's organized by a pro-slavery faction, headquartered in the town of Lecompton, using numbers that would have satisfied only Mayor Richard Daley, Sr. of Chicago. (laughs) Vote early and often. But Buchanan puts all the weight of the presidency behind that. Now at this point, Lincoln begins to see that there are dots that want connecting. Ah, here's Stephen A. Douglas. Ah, here's the previous president, Franklin Peirce. Ah, here's the, the, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States and its Chief Justice, Roger Brooke Tawney. Ah, here's James Buchanan, Roger, Franklin, Stephen, and James. And as he awakens the threat here, he sees not just a mistaken policy, but in fact a deliberate contrivance. And at this point, Douglas, rather Lincoln, stands up to denounce the doctrine of popular sovereignty. How? How can he do it? How can someone who is supposed to believe in democracy denounce popular sovereignty? How can that happen? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. That seems to be a contradiction. But let's look look at Lincoln's own writings this way. You've read an interesting spectrum of Lincoln's writings on democracy. His eulogy for Henry Clay. His great speech at Peoria on October 16, 1854, a speech which I have to tell you really includes within itself all the elements of Lincoln's political philosophy. If you burned up everything else written by Abraham Lincoln and left only the Peoria speech, you would still have all of Lincoln's political philosophy. You know, get rid of the Gettysburg Address, get rid of the first inaugural and the second inaugural, you can burn them all up. But the Peoria speech has everything in it every constituent element that will be important over the next decade. Then you've also read his fragments on slavery, which were really notes for a number of his speeches. And you've also read the Henry Pierce letter of 1859 about Jefferson and democracy. In those things, Lincoln has a lot to say on the subject of democracy. The question then is what? What could he possibly say about democracy after popular sovereignty? All right, let's take it one by one. The eulogy on Clay, the eulogy on Henry Clay, his beau ideal of a statesman who died in 1852, along with Stephen A. Douglas, curiously enough, one of the architects of the Compromise of 1850. But he had been the great standard bearer of the Whig party in the old days when Lincoln was a Whig. He was from Kentucky, as Lincoln was, And he was an avowed moderate, a man who disliked slavery, but who, like Lincoln, believed that what was necessary was simply for it to be contained where it was so that it could die out gradually and painlessly. What does Lincoln say about democracy in connection with Henry Clay? Ah, brave souls, adventure forth. What does he say about democracy? What does he say about freedom? What does he say about his country in the eulogy to Henry Clay? All right, yes. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, page 133. Mm-hmm. I think he sums up pretty well what he says uh, up to that point. He says, Clay's predominant
1: sentiment, which is First line of the
0: last full paragraph. With a deep devotion to the cause of human liberty, a strong sympathy with the oppressed everywhere, and an ardent wish for their elevation. All right, the first thing that Lincoln admires in Henry Clay is his devotion to liberty. And when he thinks of liberty, notice right away how much he thinks of it so very quickly. In terms of economic opportunity, the opportunity for the oppression, the oppressed, those who are held down in life, to rise, to stage that that role in the in the race of life. So, liberty should be the first, primary characteristic of democracy. If democracy is not about liberty, no point in talking about it, according to Lincoln in the address on clay. Okay, what else? Well, with that he
1: was saying that you know he he took that wasn't
0: a member of the North only. Right. He was a member of all of those he in the whole. So this is where you, can see, you know, they can really in the Henry Clay was from Kentucky. He was born in Virginia, but he was lived most of his life in Kentucky, represented Kentucky in Congress. And yet, he never thought of himself as a Kentuckian. He never thought of himself as a Southerner. He thought of himself predominantly as an American. Now, you might think, well, that's, you know, that's a nice sentiment. Hallmark greeting cards probably have something to that effect. But that was actually very politically charged. How did you view the American Republic? Was the American Republic a collection of special geographic interests? Some people thought it was. John Calhoun thought it was. Randolph of Roanoke thought it was. Southerners frequently said that they believed that if they had a country, it was Virginia or North Carolina, or South Carolina. That was their country. And their country belonged to a federation of sovereign states that simply happened to be known as the United States. That meant, of course, that they would oppose any effort by the federal Congress to intervene in their state affairs, whether on economic questions, such as federally sponsored economic development, or, more especially, on the issue of slavery. There were some people who really believed the United States was a collection of special geographic interests. And those interests were represented in Congress. That was the purpose of Congress. And Lincoln says that was not Henry Clay's view. Henry Clay's view was that Americans constituted a nation. They were Americans first, and Virginians, or North Carolinans, or Massachusetts, whatever you call a Massachusetts person. Massachusettsians? You're not Googling something, right? Okay, I'm just checking. What the expert of Massachusetts?
1: Bostonians. Boston. <laughs>
0: not out in Berkshire County, they are. <laughs> um, uh, whatever you wanted to call yourself, you were an American first, and not only an American. There's there's one other, really, really crucial distinction that Lincoln makes here about Clay, talking, you know, talking about Clay and Clay talking about his country. What? Oh,
1: I just had it.
0: Oh, sure, I'll throw it in. Oh, <coughs> no, 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 throw, toss it in. On the
1: 237, he brings up that um, about slavery, he did not perceive that on a question of human rights of those expected or to be ex- accepted from the human race, and that Mr. Clay, slaves, cast into a life of slavery was already widely spread and deeply seated. He did not perceive, as I think no wise man has perceived, how it could be at once eradicated without producing a greater evil, even
0: to clause human liberty itself. So he should prudence. Prudence, exactly. Exactly. So we have liberty, we have prudence, we have nationality. There's one other thing I'm fishing for here. And this you and I think it's the most remarkable statement of all, about how Clay loved his country. Is that the can you pick up on that clue? Clay loved his country. Why? Partly because it was a free. Partly because it was his country, but mostly because it was a free country. What did Henry Clay love about America? Did he love America for Americans' sake? Because Americans are some peculiar race? Or because they speak some peculiar language? Or they have some peculiar culture? I mean, we're often exhorted to believe that the essence of patriotism is, you know, we love America because of America. You know, we're Americans and America do or die. We're all Americans. And you hear this in a lot of popular songs, um, most of which I think are rather wrong-headed. Notice how Lincoln defines things here. Clay loved his country because it was his country. Well, all right, you were born there. It was a natural instinct. But he loved his country mostly because it was a free country, because it was dedicated to a principle, to a proposition about freedom. Remember what I said last time, that it takes 1,500 years to make a Frenchman, but 20 minutes to make an American? Why? Again, the distinction is because an American is an American because you assent to a proposition. A Frenchman can only be a Frenchman if they're born French, speak French, have French culture, have French wine, blah, 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 like that. You know, they've got to be able to trace the ancestry all the way back to the Franks. Americans don't. To become an American, you do not need to be able to show that you have lived in America for 20 generations, okay? You do not need to demonstrate that you are a member of a particular race you do not need to demonstrate that you are a member of a particular religion. You are asked to assent to certain propositions and whether you are black, white, everything in between, whether you come from Nigeria or whether you come from the North Pole, whether your great-great-great-great- great-great-grandfather was born here or whether you just stepped off the boat, you can be an American because being an American is an assent to certain propositions chief in those propositions was liberty freedom that's what makes people according to Lincoln that's what makes people an American patriot there was nothing intrinsic in the American people nothing intrinsic in the American soil which made it different from the soil or the people of other places what made Americans different from everyone else was their dedication to that unique principle that all men are created equal. Every other nation on the face of the earth is busy denying that. Every other nation on the face of the earth is busy (coughs) swearing allegiance to kings and czars and kaisers and emperors and tin-pot dictators. But in the United States, we were swearing allegiance to, of all things in the world, to a proposition. Isn't that rich? I mean, look, if you were going to swear allegiance to the czar, Boy, you had something to swear allegiance to, didn't you? I mean, there were pomp, there was ceremony, there were palaces, there was power, there was Peter the Great. Wow, that was something to swear allegiance to. Or you could swear allegiance to to the Queen of England. Oh, to Queen Victoria, to be part of the empire. Oh, that was a great thing. Britannia rules the waves. Something to swear allegiance to. And Lincoln said, forget it. What makes America distinctive is that it's dedicated to a proposition. You assent to that proposition? Okay, you're in. You assent to that proposition? You're in. Any of you assent to that proposition? Come on in. Doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, doesn't matter who your parents were, doesn't matter what your prospects are. You assent to that proposition and friends, you're home free. And that proposition was about freedom, and that was why Henry Clay loved his country. Because it was a country about freedom. So for Lincoln, whenever you talk about democracy, you have to remember that democracy is first and foremost about liberty, and any discussion about democracy, which is not based upon liberty, is going nowhere. First and foremost, all right. Let's turn from the eulogy to clay to the Peoria speech. How does Lincoln talk in the Peoria speech about democracy? What kinds of things does he say about democracy in the Peoria speech? Before we get into the Peoria Peoria speech, I
1: want to ask you, isn't uh, Douglas also being more underhanded than mentioned because of his interest, financial interest, in the uh,
0: Transcontinental Railroad? Um, I I would never disagree with anyone who wants to suggest that Stephen A. Douglas was even more devious than I am. <laughs> oh
1: yeah,
0: oh yeah, he definitely had interests. Oh, the man was a long roller, the man was self-interested. Lincoln at one point in 1856 drew a contrast between himself and Stephen A. Douglas. Because they'd known each other for years. Both of them, both of them migrated to <coughs> Illinois, one from Kentucky, one from The two had known each other for years. And in 1856, Lincoln says, let's look at the balance sheet. Douglas, famous, everybody knows his name. Who am I? Abe Lincoln of Springfield, Illinois. With me, Lincoln said, the race of life has been a flat failure. Whereas with Douglas, everything's been handed to him on a silver platter. Either that or he grabs somebody else's silver platter. The great terrible thing about Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln said, is that he is a liar. And yet, being a liar, being self-interested, looking out for number one, Douglas had apparently gone to the head of the class. And There was Abe Lincoln stuck all the way in the back, a one-term congressman. Not much there to take satisfaction in. Was Douglas devious? Oh, you bet. Now, tell me about the Peoria speech. How does he talk about democracy in the Peoria speech? What did this country set out to be at the beginning? And it's interesting here, Lucas, connecting to this theme about the fathers, the founding fathers. Notice how Lincoln wants to take us right away to the founders. He doesn't beat around the bush. He wants to take us not into the realm of abstractions, not into the realm of philosophy. He wants to take us to the Founders. What was the intention of the Founders? And is the doctrine of popular sovereignty going to reflect that? Or in fact, is the doctrine of popular sovereignty going to take us a good long distance away from the Founders? Go ahead. Well, the Founders, through the um, I mean,
1: with, uh, ordinance, that slavery would not uh, extend to new territories. And then he claimed the states, uh, that Congress declared, it, so it never to have been,
0: sacred right of self-government is violated by it. All right. Lincoln never doubts the sacredness of the idea of popular self-government. It's that popular sovereignty is not an expression of the idea of popular self-government. It's an abomination. It's a perversion of it. Why is it a perversion? How can you talk about popular sovereignty and end up talking about a perversion? How does that... I mean, if you're talking about popular sovereignty, you're talking about democracy, you know? 51% of the people decide, therefore 51% of the people win. 51% of the people in this room want pepperoni pizza. 49% want anchovies. What do we get? We get pepperoni. All right, that's democracy, isn't it? What's wrong with that? pepperoni on it, and
1: then you on How do you get the pepperoni off? Well, that's one
0: complication. That's a problem. That's a problem. What about people voting that are not members of the territory? Well, that's true. <laughs> that's a problem. But you know, that's that's a, again, that's execution. That's okay, not that's, that's not, not principle, okay. right? Problem in Kansas is the you know Douglas. They just didn't they just didn't get a chance to do it right. There were too many pressure groups, and that in fact only reinforces the doctrine of popular sovereignty because what all these pressure groups are trying to do is to short circuit genuine popular sovereignty. I mean for. For uh, Stephen A. Douglas, popular sovereignty is always the idea which has never been tried yet fully. And if we would just try it fully, it would work. So all these other things are really mistakes. What else? What else about democracy here in the Peoria speech? Yes.
1: Well, since uh, power comes from the people, there needs to be a check on that
0: power. Why? I thought that was what democracy was about. Power to the people, right? But yeah, but people what are you, are you? Some kind of commie? I mean, <laughs> what are well, you? Some kind of, kind of a dictator? I, 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 on the what are you?
1: Well, you know, you are like Saddam Hussein or something.
0: I mean, I thought democracy was about power to the people, <laughs> right? Well, see, as we were talking about, like in uh, DC or um, in Philadelphia,
1: when, when like the king, well, about, the king was the source was of, the of sovereignty, then right? You uh, you have to put limits on the king's power in order to be protected from. Arbitrary use. Of power. In, in our system, we've started from the bottom up with by giving the people the power. Right. So That's in, the order cure. To, in order to prevent uh, arbitrary use of popular sovereignty, we have to have some kind
0: of whoa. Republican check. On whoa! This. Whoa! 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 Stop right How do you put a check on the will of the people and still have a democracy? All right, then that's your check then, okay? So what are, you, what are you all worked up about? Why are you against popular sovereignty?
1: There's no representative democracy there to...
0: Sure there is. Where? Well, it's is in the territorial legislature, there is in Congress itself. I mean, this place is just, Washington is just reeking with representatives. Are you talking
1: about the states, or the territories voting, one person, one vote to
0: decide what happens? Yeah, why shouldn't that, I mean, why are you against that? I mean, yes, I know in Kansas there have been irregularities. But look, if we undo every election because of the irregularities, we won't have any elections at all. All right? It's, it's the principle of the thing we're talking about here. Popular sovereignty is a principle. What we have to do is not say that popular sovereignty. We just have to get popular sovereignty to operate properly. All right? So why are you opposed to popular sovereignty? Why is there a problem here? Why shouldn't popular sovereignty be the way in a democracy to solve the problem of slavery in the territories. Yes.
1: Here, looking on page one sixty-eight, says when the white man governs himself, that is self-government. But when he governs himself and other also governs another man, that is more than self-government. That is despotism. Uh-huh. So, for it, it's wrong because you are take you are taking the right of someone else the right of self-government, but also. Okay. He has a, So that's one: is that slavery is morally wrong. But another objection he has is that it limits the rights of self-government for people, for for people okay. who are in that society. You can look on page 170 where he says.
0: I can. I, I what I want because I'm going to interrupt you. I want, I want to <laughs> I want to pick on them, pick up on those two things because they're both crucial for the way Lincoln is going to develop his argument. He begins by saying, all right, popular sovereignty. Yes, I love popular sovereignty, but is popular sovereignty, as Douglas articulating it, really the genuine article? After all, what's happening in popular sovereignty? A white man is making a decision for black people who have no say in it. That is not popular government. Popular government is supposed to be where everybody has a say. And in this case, Stephen A. Douglas is creating a situation where only white people have a say. And black people are there, but they're silent. They're seen, but they're not heard. Is that, is that genuine popular sovereignty, Lincoln says? To which Stephen A. Douglas answers, what? It's a white man's world. What does he say?
1: White, white
0: man's world. He says, yes, that's exactly right. Popular sovereignty for white people. That's what popular sovereignty is. That's what the Declaration of Independence is about, white people. This country is based on
1: the idea that the only people who are created equal are white
0: people. Are white people, that's exactly right. What an insight. What a profound statement. What deep philosophy. What self serving nonsense. But anyway, um, this, is, this is Douglass' response. Sure, I'm, I, I am consistently applying popular sovereignty because popular sovereignty belongs to white people. Why white people rather than black people? Black people weren't citizens,
1: they were
0: slaves. Not only are they not citizens, there's something even else that they're not. they inferior, they're an inferior race. They ain't like us. That's the basic message. White people are inherently superior to black people, and by extension, lots of other people as well. Might be yellow people, might be brown people. The white people are superior. They are number one, numero uno. Therefore, when you have popular sovereignty, what it means is the popular sovereignty of those people who are entitled to exercise popular sovereignty, which is whites only. So therefore, there's no problem. There's no problem with popular sovereignty as Douglas is articulating the doctrine because popular sovereignty <coughs> is being exercised by the people who are supposed to be popularly sovereign, white people. Right? Does that make sense? Is that logical? You like that? So Douglas Douglass was a white supremacist? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he makes all kinds of nice benevolent noises about people who are not white, but fundamentally he's a white supremacist. Now, This is where the crucial argument about slavery being morally wrong comes to play. Is slavery morally wrong? Now before you answer that, let me ask a related question. When I tell my little Pembroke Welsh Corgi, I love my Pembroke Welsh Corgi, wonderful dog. Anyway, when I tell him to sit, he sits. When I tell him to go, he goes. Well, most of the time he does. I I tell him, and, and he does that. Now, am I depriving him of his popular sovereignty? No, no, because he's a dog, all right? A dog is a dog is a dog. A dog's supposed to listen to what I say, all right? Now, what has that got to do with slavery? Go ahead.
1: If the dog were a man, you would be depriving him
0: of his personal liberties. But, he's not a man. He's just a dog. Not in your view, perhaps. That's right.
1: But, <laughs> but the view that has to be taken care of is one of the national view, viewpoint. We cannot be um, paternalistic in our decision-making process and allow only those that are there to vote on such an important issue as
0: the issue of slavery. not? <laughs> Why not? Why is it why is it wrong to enslave people? (laughs) No, 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 you're getting too technical. It's too technical. It's much more obvious than it. Why? Why is it why is slavery wrong? Why is it wrong to enslave black people? Why is it wrong to exclude black slaves from the polity? Why I mean I exclude my dog from it. Why not excluding black slaves? Well you don't I'm not I don't worry about whether my, my dog has consent.
1: It has natural rights my dog may
0: have fleas, but he doesn't have to have consent. You know?
1: They have natural rights. They have what? Natural rights. Natural
0: rights. Holy <laughs> moly. What's a natural right? God-given. Hardwired. A natural right. Lincoln says. Everything that Douglass tells you about popular sovereignty and slavery would be just fine if the black man was not a man. The hitch is that the black man is a man. And slavery violates his natural rights and popular sovereignty, by being limited to whites only, violates something else. Lincoln can't quite articulate at this point. Natural rights, natural rights. What do natural rights imply? If I say that you have natural rights, I mean, are natural rights just sort of like free-floating things in the atmosphere, like comets? What do natural rights imply? A system of what? A system of order, yeah. And we call that system of order what? Government natural law. Natural law. This is what Lincoln is appealing to. He's saying there is a natural law. And in that natural law are embedded natural rights as a system. And those who are men, those who are human, have these natural rights. And they are subordinate to that natural law. Can of the voters in a given polity repeal natural law? No. Can they repeal civil laws? Yes. Can they repeal social laws? Yes. Can they repeal political decisions and policies? Yes. Can they repeal natural law? No. And this is where Lincoln finds himself taking his stand that popular sovereignty is right and good and proper when we're talking about 51% majorities governing social, political, and and economic questions. But majorities, popular sovereignty has no place in addressing questions of natural right and natural law. Those are beyond the competency of popular sovereignty to determine which means that not only slavery, but in fact the whole structure of Douglass' doctrine of popular sovereignty is flawed right down to the concrete. Because in fact he has ignored natural law. He has tried to treat us all as though the only thing that existed were social, political, economic laws, in which what governs essentially is power. If you can summon up enough power, if you can recruit enough power in the form of a 51% majority of the voters, you can dictate the polity, right? Right. But no 51% of voters, no majority, no exercise of power can ever destroy natural law or natural rights. Jefferson said that the love of liberty was so deeply ingrained in human nature that liberty and life can be destroyed but they cannot be severed. You can take someone's <laughs> life away from them by force, but you can't take away their right to life and you can't take away their liberty. You've got to destroy the entire person in order to destroy their things. Now for Lincoln, for Lincoln, the fact that the black man is a human being Means that he, in terms of natural rights and natural law, is beyond well, beyond the pale, beyond the reach of mere fifty-one percent majorities, and that introduces into this discussion something entirely new. Tell me, where in the Constitution do you find an articulation of natural law and natural rights? Pre-amp. 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 In the preamble. In the where? Yeah, we the, not 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 in due recognition of natural law. No, it's we the people, in order to do what? To recognize the eternality of natural law. No, we the, in order to form a more perfect union, to promote domestic tranquility, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where's natural law in the Constitution? The well, life,
1: liberty,
0: and the guarantee of government. <clears throat> Nah. I want to know where natural law is in the Constitution, as natural, not implication, not a penumbra, not a suggestion, not a stage whisper. I want to know. Where is it in the Constitution? Answer? It's not found in the Constitution. It's not found in the Constitution. It's not within the realm of the laws
1: established by the Constitution because the natural laws are above and beyond what anything in the Constitution can touch.
0: My hat is off to you. Got it perfectly. Because the Constitution is not addressing questions of natural law and natural right. It's addressing questions of social, political, economic policy. That's why a constitution can be amended. You can change it. If you find out that something is mistaken or it's going in the wrong direction, you amend. You can't amend natural law. If the constitution was about natural law, you wouldn't be able to amend it. What document does talk about natural law though?
1: Declaration of independence.
0: And what does Abraham Lincoln take as his pole star in the Peoria speech? Declaration of Independence. What does he laud Thomas Jefferson for writing in the letter to Henry Pierce? Declaration of Independence. Because in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson was encoding natural law and natural rights into the DNA of the American Republic. Now mind you, Abraham Lincoln didn't always like Thomas Jefferson in a lot of other ways. Jeffersonian political philosophy, Jeffersonian policies, Lincoln spent much of his life opposing them. But in this fundamental respect, he will say, say all hail to Jefferson, all honor to Jefferson. Because whatever else Jefferson did wrong, he did this thing right. He encoded natural rights life, liberty, pursuit, happiness, in the Declaration. Not that we are realizing these perfectly, but they're there always as a beacon to call us to try to do better. Because the principles themselves do not change. Our understanding, our apprehension, our application of them changes, but not the principles themselves. Lincoln is going to oppose the doctrine of popular sovereignty the doctrine of natural law, based on the Declaration of Independence. Now, how he will get away with that when he actually has to meet Stephen A. Douglas in public debate? Whoo, that we will have to wait and see. Uh-huh. Lucas, has the clock struck? Uh, it's just a few minutes left. Yeah. I think I, I, I do it. Okay. Okay. We have five minutes, who wants to consume five minutes for the question? You do, I know, go ahead. I guess I just don't understand this distinction
1: you're making between natural law being something that cannot be amended or changed or voted on, because we have all these states that actually have voted on something natural often an
0: instituted of slavery, and it's not until we're going to get the 13th Amendment that we're gonna get rid of slavery. Right, well slavery is, Slavery partakes of both. Slavery is both a civil institution and a violation of natural law. Now, Lincoln is saying this. Slavery gets encoded into certain social and political documents, like state constitutions, for instance, and state statutes. It gets encoded there. That's a mistake. It's a mistake because we did not perceive things correctly. We did not perceive them as they ought to be. Mercifully, we can change that. And the thing that constantly is reminding us of our need to change that is what is found in the Declaration of Independence's articulated Wall. In I mean, look at, look at what he says in the letter to Henry Pierce. It's funny, this is only one letter, but it's got great stuff in it. He talks about this invitation to speak in Boston on the birthday of Thomas Jefferson. And he now talks about what these principles were like. And he says, all honor to Jefferson, to the man who, in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people. In other words, Jefferson Jefferson was under no obligation to articulate eternal principles. He could have just stuck to talking about what the American grievances were with the king and what the American problems were and what the specific situation in 1776 was. In other words, Jefferson could have lopped off the entire first part of the Declaration of Independence, and just contented himself with indicting the king, and it would have worked. It would have worked for the American Revolution. It would have worked for Americans in 1776. Jefferson could have done that. But instead, what does Jefferson do? He had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document. When he says merely revolutionary, he means you know, just this specific moment in history with this specific set of circumstances. He had the coolness and the foresight to introduce into this very specific historical document, an abstract truth, applicable to all men and all times. Whew, boy, there's a... <coughs> Did you ever hear of a statute that a state legislature or even Congress had passed, which could be applicable to everybody? everywhere, at all times. Ever hear of that? You think that there's enough wisdom in any Congress to adopt something like that? Probably not. But Jefferson puts something like that into the declaration of independence. Not because Jefferson had insight that others necessarily didn't have, but because what Jefferson is talking about is natural law. Which is the same. Everywhere, for everyone, at all times. And so, to embalm it there, not just to put it there, but to embalm it there. And when he means embalm here, he's not meaning that he you know, deep-sixed it. He means he's got it fixed. He's got it laid out. He's got it portrayed with such eloquence that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression. Not, not just when tyranny shows up, but when the little flock of birds comes telling you, oh, tyranny's coming, tyranny's coming. <laughs> At that point, what springs to your lips? <coughs> declaration of independence. Why? Lincoln made the comment. This is in 1859. Lincoln made the comment. He said, you know, fully half of our population came from other places. I mean, I don't know if he had the statistics right, but he says, fully half of our population came from another place. And they came from Germany, or they came from Scandinavia, or they came from France. You notice how he always, he's talking about Europe. But what he really means to do is to say, our population came from other places outside the United States. When you show them the Constitution, what do they see? They see the rule book. They see the political handbook of, of the country. And that's all. But, sizzling, when you show them that statement in the Declaration that all men are created equal, then those quote unquote foreign suddenly feel that they have heard something which makes them flesh of the flesh and bone of the bone of those old men that wrote the Declaration of Independence. Because while the Constitution is not about the business of natural law, the Declaration is, and everyone can resonate, with the Declaration of Independence, no matter matter where. If you read the Constitution to someone in outer Mongolia, they may not have the famous idea what you're talking about. But when you say to them, all men are created equal, bingo, you get a response. You push a button. There's people in Tiananmen Square in 1989. When they had when they had to create an image of democracy, what did they do? They create a mock up of the Statue of Liberty. I mean, was it wasn't because they were architects. Was it because that someone there was from New York? It was because, like Lincoln said, that whenever They look into that declaration and they read that proposition. That all men are created equal. Ah. Then they ascend to it. They don't need to reason their way to it. They just see it as a first principle and they know it's true. And they believe that they are flesh of the flesh and bone of the bone of those old men that wrote the declaration. Yeah, that's how you become an American in 20 minutes. Stephen A. Douglas, however, only white people could become Americans. Now the clash is going to be between Douglas and Lincoln, and not just between and not just between two Illinois politicians. Mustered behind Douglas and mustered behind Lincoln are the shades of the past and all the potential of the future. Now coming to one great clash on the prairies of Illinois. And that's what we look at after dinner.